Chapter 66 The Shark Massacre When in the southern fishery, a captured sperm whale after long and weary toil is brought alongside late at night, it is not, as a general thing at least, customary to proceed as once to the business of cutting him in. For that business is an exceedingly laborious one. It is not very soon completed and requires all hands to set about it. Therefore, the common usage is to take in all sail, lash the helm a lee, and then send everyone below to his hammock till daylight, with the reservation that, until that time, anchor watches shall be kept, that is, two and two for an hour, each couple, the crew in rotation shall mount the deck to see that all goes well. But sometimes, especially upon the line in the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all, because such incalculable hosts of sharks gather round the moored carcass, that were he left so for six hours, say, on a stretch, little more than a skeleton would be visible in the morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous veracity can be at times considerably diminished by vigorously stirring them with the sharp wailing spades, a procedure notwithstanding which, in some instances, only seemed to tickle them into still greater activity. But it was not thus in the present case with the Pequod's sharks, though, to be sure, any man accustomed to such sights, to have looked over the side that night, would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese, and those sharks the maggots in it. Nevertheless, upon Stubb setting the anchor watch after his supper was concluded, and when, accordingly, Quig Quag and a forecastle seaman came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks. For immediately suspending the cutting stages over the side, and lowering three lanterns so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid sea, these two mariners, darning their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks by striking the keen steel deep into their skulls seemingly their only vital part. The whaling spade used for cutting in is made of the very best steel, is about the bigness of a man's spread hand, and in general shape corresponds to the garden implement after which it is named. Only its sides are perfectly flat, and its upper end considerably narrower than the lower. This weapon is always kept as sharp as possible, and when being used is occasionally honed just like a razor. In its socket, a stiff pole, from 20 to 30 feet long, is inserted for a handle. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their mark, and this brought about new revelations of incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped, not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexible boughs, bent round, and bit their own till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth, to be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones, after what might be called the individual life had departed, killed and hoisted onto the deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Quigquag's hand off when he tried to shut down the dead lid of his murderous jaw. Quigquag no care what God made him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji God or Nantucket God, but de God what made shark must be one damn again.
Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.